Well, the story is told of a Dr. Draper, a Salvation Army doctor in India, who got word of an individual in the hospital that was dying. He was on his deathbed, so was the, the rumor going around, and his case was, in fact, pretty bad. And as people tried to visit with him, to connect with him, uh, he longed to to have some better understanding of issues as it related to salvation, but he was really struggling to get that full picture. And I can just imagine people going in and giving all of these phrases that we use so often in church that mean something to us, but don't necessarily mean something to other people. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, they might come in and say, well, you need to be born again. I don't know how to do that. What does that even mean? Well, you need to put on his robe of righteousness. Okay, does that mean I need to take this off? And where do I get that? What does it look like? What is that? Uh, and, And everybody that went in came up with another. You need to follow the lamb wherever it goes. Okay, where's the lamb? Is there a lamb allowed in the hospital? And I follow it. Where do I follow it? And one thing after the next, and and as they tried to simplify it and break it down, he just became so frustrated that finally Dr. Draper went in. And he decided to simply open up his Bible, and he turned to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. And he read that parable, and you won't find in this parable words like justification and sanctification and glorification and all of these other things, But they're all here. They're all inserted in this parable that Jesus himself taught to help us better understand with our finite minds this idea of salvation and some of the pitfalls that we can find ourselves in. And when he read this parable to this dying young man at 25, he got it. And he was converted before he passed away. And so I want to look at that parable a uh, powerful parable that we want to look at this morning as we continue the last part in this series, Lost Sheep, uh, the Lost Coin, and today the Lost Son. We might even be able to say the Lost Sons uh, if we wanted to do that. And I think it's important to continue to emphasize each time the audience with which Jesus is sharing this parable to. It's in those first two verses of Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles open. But it says, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. They like to be in his presence, which is an interesting dynamic when sinners desire to be in the presence of a holy God. Yet that was the situation. But in verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so again, that is the context of these three parables that we've been looking at. And the first one, Jesus talks about this lost sheep. And it talks about how he leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one until he finds it. God is so gracious. He doesn't scold. He doesn't drive that lost sheep home, but scoops up the little lamb in his arms or places it on his shoulders and takes him home. And not only that, but we read how there's a huge party in heaven, much rejoicing in heaven over one lost sheep that's found. 
We looked a couple weeks ago at the lost coin that is lost in the house, doesn't know that it's lost. And the woman, because she has lost something very precious to her in her own home, she lights the lamp, which is God's word, seeking that the Holy Spirit will cast light on her situation that she may see clearly and might reclaim that child of hers, which is lost. Yes, it can be a church member and someone lost within the church, but it can also be within our very home. And after much searching, the lost coin is found. Praise the Lord. We looked at this quotation, but those who have been guilty of neglect are not to despair. The woman whose coin was lost searched until she found it. So in love and faith and prayer, let parents work for their households until with joy they can come to God saying, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given to me. Help us, Lord, as parents, in our efforts to be good Christians, to be good leaders or whatever it might be, to lose those closest to us. And again, when the coin was found, there was great rejoicing as a symbol of the rejoicing that takes place in in heaven. The party that was thrown for you and for me. Just us. It's pretty incredible. And so I want to look at this third parable in a series. Uh, We're beginning now, Luke chapter 15. I hope you're already there. We're beginning in verse 11. And notice in all three, in this third category especially, I should say, the prodigal son knows his way back home. This is unique of the prodigal son. In the first two parables, there's an all-out search for the lost. Everything is dropped. Every resource is channeled to bring the lost back home. This dog is on my wife's screensaver. We can't come home without it. Smart man. You better pray. But in this third category, the son willingly, this time, leaves the home. He knows where home is. He's grown up there. He knows the area well. But he has made a decided decision in his mind, I'm leaving. And we see a father that respects the son's decision and prayerfully waits at home. Because the reality exists, there are situations the parent can run and they can find the child and they can say, what are you doing here? Who invited you? You're not welcome. Did you not get the hint? And the door can be slammed. No, there's times that you stay at home and you pray. So let's pick up this story now, verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So here we have the younger brother. He become weary of the restraint of his father's house. And the son acknowledges no obligation to the father, 
You know, you think back to those hardy days, you had to have some good, uh, you know, sons and, and daughters to, to keep the household running. He feels no obligation, nor does he express any gratitude to his father. Yet, he still wants to claim the privileges of a son. And virtually says, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get my share. Perhaps because he's the youngest and there's just two. There might be more along the way. If I get my share now, it might be more. I don't know. But dad, I wish you were dead. I want my share. Now, can you divide up the estate? I'm in my prime. There's a world to see and you're standing in my way. So dad, I have an idea. Let's pretend you're dead. You give me what's rightfully mine, and you do it right now. Give me all the benefits. And he's asking for this while he's virtually severing the relationship. He wants separation from his father. He wants separation from the rules, from his dad's way of doing things. He wants independence. He wants freedom. No more restrictions. No more getting up early. No more hard work. I'm going to do what I want to do. No more schedules and routine. Well, you got to eat this and you got to eat that. Forget it. I'm out of here. But he still wants to claim all the good in his eyes. And so reading the last part of verse 12. So he divided to them his livelihood. That's a pretty gracious father right there, don't you think? Son, that's the dumbest idea I think I've ever heard. I got a better idea. Why don't you get off this land before I kick you off this land? Is that what you read, the last part of verse 12? Is there some emotion wrapped up in those few words that we just read? I imagine he's really spending some time thinking about this, wondering, my goodness, has it really come to this? What is this going to mean? How am I going to logistically divide the farm? Do I have enough in my resources and, and my investments or whatever he has? Or do I literally have to sell pieces of the farm and land and, and maybe some farming equipment? Maybe I have to let some people go. I have to somehow liquidate. This is not an easy thing his son is asking. But we just have in a few words the concession of the father dividing his things. Talk about gracious. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Notice it says he takes his share, and where does he go with it? A far country. He wants to get away from this Jewish influence. All these laws and regulations. 
In fact, I think we're safe to assume he wants to go someplace pagan, someplace Gentile, a far country. And why there? Because there people won't ask any questions. Aren't you the son of? Nope. Are you sure you want to go into that establishment? Nope. There's going to be no accountability. Nobody's going to know who I am. I'm going to be able to do whatever I want to do. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to fall headlong into sin, you had to go to a far country, a far city. Technology's changed that today. You don't have to go to a far country. You can just go to your dorm room. You can just go to your backyard. You don't have to travel miles and miles to find sin. Sin will find you in your pocket. It can penetrate each of our households through Wi-Fi and cable television, through the DISH network. And so the far country is no longer geographically far. But the far country is as close as your smartphone or your computer. So today, we can be the prodigal and never have to leave home. And the last part of that verse says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Prodigal living is basically just a restatement of that word wasteful or extravagant, you could say, living. So he's driving the fancy car, he's wearing the fancy clothes, he's throwing fancy parties. Guess what? The drinks, the drugs, whatever you want, it's on the house. Just come. And they do. And they enjoy. And we get this idea that he's buying his friends because we find out that when the money is gone, so are the friends. But he's not just squandered the inheritance from his father. These evil companions have helped him plunge even deeper into sin. In fact, later in the story, the older brother speaks of him wasting his inheritance on harlots of all things. In fact, spirit of prophecy refers to this younger son as becoming morally dwarfed. Think about that. Nothing is too low. Nothing is too degrading to try to participate in. If it feels good, I'm going to try it. And so this son is the prodigal. He's wasted everything he's been given, and not just the means that he took from his father, but he's wasting his upbringing. He is squandering his moral compass. He has cast aside the example and laws of his father. And this morning, I want to ask the simple question, how many prodigals are within the sound of my voice this morning? Guilty of wasteful living. Wasting the heritage given to us by our Heavenly Father in His Word. Wasting the Father's resources, the talents, the time given to us. Are there any prodigals here this morning? Christ's Object Lessons, page 200, says, Every life centered in self is what? Squandered. And so he's squandering even the years of his youth. 
He's squandering the powers of heart and mind and soul. And 2,000 years have passed since the first telling of this story, but not much has changed. There are still plenty, you know them and I know them, who are squandering. And maybe it's closer to home than that. Do you know alcohol is one of the number one abusers, even in the Adventist church? In fact, within our church, there are plenty of wine connoisseurs, if you will. Well, a little wine is good for you. And they read the articles and the medical journals, but they miss the point that the benefit is in the grape, not in the alcohol. Did you know that alcohol is the most commonly used and abused drug in the United States among our youth? 12 to 20-year-olds, not even supposed to be able to buy it. 12 to 20-year-olds, more than 90% of alcohol is consumed, sorry, 12 to 20-year-olds drink 11% of all the alcohol consumed in the United States, 11%. And for the young people, same category, 12 to 20 years old, more than 90% of alcohol is consumed in binge drinking. We could say in party-type drinking. According to our own Dr. Bailey, alcohol is associated with hypertension, cardiac dysrhythmia, AFib, congestive cardiomyopathy, bleeding stroke in young people, cirrhosis of the litter, bleeding ulcers, loss of brain tissue, dementia, osteoporosis, psychosis, sudden death. And for pregnant women, it can cause miscarriage, fetal alcohol syndrome, major organ system malformations, pre- and postnatal growth impairment, central nervous system dysfunction, retardation. Need I go on? Yet there is still among too many this idea that, uh, what's the big deal? Rules and regulations. Is that what Dad told you? <sighs> I can handle it. You know, one in four can't handle it, whatever handle it means, but they come alcoholics, meaning it totally wrecks their life. What if I had a loaded gun and I just went through and I severely injured one in four? Those are pretty good odds. Are they? Do not be deceived. There's a long list, but it says, neither drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that, do you suppose? Because it short circuits our ability to reason, to think clearly. I mean, if I'm going to overcome challenges and obstacles, and if I'm turning to the bottle for answers, folks, Jesus is the answer. Marijuana has increased 60% over the last decade. Have mercy. Estimated that one-fourth of the population has used it. The age for first use has gradually decreased and is now at the junior high years. I have a daughter in junior high. That's 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And more high school seniors smoke marijuana than smoking cigarettes. Why? Well, if you ask typical teens, and if they're going to give you an honest answer, they'll say, well, cigarettes are bad for you. Marijuana, well, that's good for you. And besides, it's legal in 23 states. In North Carolina, they've decriminalized the offense. Oh, good. What a relief. But is it good for you? Not really. In fact, the deeper... 
Or, or with marijuana versus cigarette smoking, you, you inhale deeper, you take longer breaths and hold it in, and that smoke has an impact on your lungs and gives you even a, a greater carcinogenic impact because you're holding it in longer. And oftentimes, it's hard to get a good study because people that smoke marijuana often will smoke cigarettes as well. They go together. They find that when one smokes marijuana... They have what they call motivational syndrome. This idea that they stop doing their work. They lose their motivation, their drive. Or they can only focus on one thing. And it can prevent their ability to reach a goal. It can delay your ability to morally recall things. Now, if you were the devil, would you want the whole country on this? According to this study... By Lancet Psychiatry, teens under age 17 who use marijuana every day are 60% less likely to graduate from high school compared with their peers who have never used the drug. Teen marijuana users are 18 times more likely to become dependent on the drug, 7 times more likely to attempt suicide, 8 times more likely to use other illicit drugs later in life. Why? As I understand it, marijuana causes you to release less dopamine, which is the pleasure center of the brain. So you eat an apple, you watch a sunset, some dopamine is released. But when I smoke marijuana, there's less and less dopamine being released, which means my body tries to compensate with more receptors. And what does that mean? Well, they don't like to admit that it's a gateway drug, but when I try something else, now I have so many more receptors that, whoa! Never mind the fact that as I'm on it, I start to morally think things like, what's the big deal, man? Results of this study from the American Journal of Psychiatry is that the risk of psychosis onset, also known as schizophrenia, which are things like delusions, hallucinations, a disorganized speech, trouble with thinking and lack of motivation, a vague sense of two personalities, that's the risk of psychosis onset. The risk of psychosis onset is in any given year following exposure to cannabis or marijuana doubled compared to the risk among same-age non-users. Another article published in October 2018, same source, indicated that the average frequency of cannabis used over four years produced lower performance on working memory, perceptual reasoning, and inhibition. Would the devil have an agenda on any of those three? According to the American Journal of Public Health, cities experienced a 13% increase in fatal crashes involving 15 and 20 year 24-year-old male drivers following decriminalization of marijuana in their state. 13% higher of fatal car accidents because they can't respond the same. Their moral capacity is not the same. I mean, do we want to send Jesus out in the desert to face the devil in temptation and say, before you go, take a shot of this, take an inhale of that, It'll help you to be calm, cool, collected, not so high strung. Now go get them. 
Would we do that? Yet we think it's at our advantage to do those things? Hardly. Do I even need to bring up pornography? 35% of downloads from the internet are pornographic. That's a third, folks. 40 million Americans say they regularly visit porn sites. 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit a porn site at least once per month. And that 22% of underage porn usage are under 10 years of age. This is not good news. Largest consumer group? Men between the ages of 35 to 49. But it's not just men's problem anymore. And what's the goal? The goal of the devil is to neutralize your religious experience. That's what it is. To distort a future marriage or neutralize your present marriage. To destroy your family. To confuse your kids. And we think our Father's rules are restrictive and unnecessary and make for a stale and boring and mundane life. But doesn't it only make sense that every other commercial would be a beer commercial? Doesn't it only make sense that the devil is trying to push this drug on society to the point that next week the House of Representatives, I'm told, is scheduled to vote on making marijuana legal across this land. Satan wants to intoxicate the entire planet. He wants that added edge to stop your ability to think and reason. Really, it's the war of the great controversy with you and your frontal lobe. That's what it is. To get you feeling so guilty you can no longer pray, you can't read your Bible. He wants you to become so addicted that whenever a problem arises, rather turning to God and His Word, you turn to the bottle, you turn to the pipe, or you turn to the Internet. And the devil is waging war. He's hijacking our ability to think and to reason. Yet Jesus invites us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even on the cross, they tried to comfort him with a little something. And he said, no, spit it out. I have to have my frontal lobe intact. Are there any prodigals this morning within the sound of my voice that are guilty of wasteful living? Well, you didn't, wait, you didn't list off mine, Pastor. Well, give me long enough time. I'm sure we could get there. And all the while, I believe the Father was praying. And I personally believe He was praying not just for the, quote, lost son, but for both of his sons. Because before we get to the end, I feel that both of them are lost for basically the same reason. One's working, one's partying, but they both have a warped picture of the Father. And that's crucial. Your picture of God. My picture of God. In this world can be so easily warped. You don't know my dad, Pastor. No, I don't. 
And I'm sorry if he warped your picture of God. When I do my chores, when I made my bed, when I did everything the way I was supposed to, my parents loved me. But when I didn't do my chores and I didn't make my bed, I didn't bring home the grade I was supposed to, my parents didn't love me. I learned very quick, Pastor, how this works. Do the right things, you get the right response. Do the wrong things, well, you get that other response. Continue with our story, so in verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. Praise the Lord for famine sometimes. And he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And there's all kinds of parallels here. If you haven't gotten it, God is the Father. The house is the church. The young man are those who feel they are happier apart from the laws of the household, away from the church. They don't want to have to worry about the restrictions of the Christian life. And so he goes away, but it gets so bad that in verse 15, it says he has joined himself to a citizen of that country. The Greek, or in the Greek, it means gluing something to someone else. And so this young man has glued himself to a citizen of that country. And friends, that citizen is no friend of this young man. But in desperation, he enslaves himself to this man because he is so at the end of his rope. And he gives him the task of feeding unclean animals. Folks, in the Bible, Satan and his demons are called unclean spirits. In Mark 5, the demons beg Jesus to be sent into the swine. Do you remember that story? In the sanctuary, they could only sacrifice clean animals that would represent Jesus who would be pure and clean. In pagan rites, often it was quite the opposite and they would offer swine. So here this young man is enslaved, he's joined, and I would submit to you he's enslaved and joined with Satan. Involved in one of the most degrading employments for a Jew, and the youth who has boasted of his liberty is now a slave in the worst kind of bondage. Feeding pigs. Starving. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6 reminds us, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. You ever planted a shrub in the desert? And how long will it last? Proverbs 5.22, his own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. And so now he's been joined with none other than the devil, but what does the devil do in that enslavement? But to whisper in our ears all kinds of lies. You know what they are. You deserve this. You brought this on yourself. Who are you going to go to now? Dad? No. You burned that bridge real well. We saw the hand signal you gave Dad when you left town. No, no, no. That's not an option. I mean, look at yourself. You're pathetic. 
And he tells lie after lie after lie after lie. And so we get caught. We start drowning in our cords of sin. And we start to think, well, what's the point anymore? Why try anymore? Why even put forth effort? This is who I am. Like it or not, you better just love me this way or else. But at the end of the day, we're suffering. Miserable. Poor. Blind, wretched, cold, naked. That's where this man finds himself. Thankfully, his misery has conquered his pride. Sometimes that's what has to happen. You go so low that you can't go any lower. I wonder sometimes if that's why a lot of Hollywood movie stars or artists or anybody that's super wealthy doesn't come to that point because they always have just a few more resources. Always just a little bit more that they can try to cover this up and cover that up until at some point in time, shock beyond all shocks, the news tells us another one has passed away, drug overdose or whatever it might be. Sometimes there's a blessing in rock bottom, friends. Sometimes there's a blessing in the pig pen. Because it's in the pig pen that our eyes are opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we say, is this what I wanted? Is this what I asked for? Is this all that life has left for me? And so continuing on, verse 16 He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? He comes to himself. It's the power of the pig pen. It's the power of rock bottom when there is nowhere to look but up. And he saw clearly for the first time in months, maybe years, that his suffering was the result of his own folly, that he did make the biggest mistake when he left his father. And he says to himself, how many hired hands of my father. I mean, dad treats his people well. Dad's kind. He's compassionate. Even when they're not the best workers, he still feeds them well and provides with a roof over their head or whatever it might be. I mean, maybe I could be like one of them. That would be a whole lot better than this. Notice what's drawing him back. You know, maybe there's this loophole I don't think he gave me everything I'm entitled to. I think there's still $100,000 that he was hiding, tucked away. I'm going to go back and demand that. Nope. It's the love of the Father that's drawing him back. Miserable as he was, the prodigal found hope in his Father's love. It was the Father's love that was drawing him home. 
continuing on, comes up with his plan. In verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? And I imagine after much thought, he said, this is what I'll say. I'll say, Father, I'm just going to own it. I don't know how else to say it. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Part one. Make me like one of your hired servants. Part two. Why do we need to divide it out? Well, because part one, all true. Part two gives us an insight onto that misunderstanding of the character and nature of God. Because in part two is this idea, if I can just be a hired servant, if I can somehow work my way back into your favor, just hire me as that, you know, well, we'll give you a shot, but we'll see how it works. If you don't show up to work tomorrow, you're out of here. Start me off there, and over time, just see if I can prove that I'm different, that I'm changed, that I'm a good person, and maybe over time, maybe, we can talk about if I could be part of the family again, but we're not even going to bring that up. Just let me be a hired servant and try and earn your favor back. That's part two. Romans 2, verse 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Again, it was his father's love drawing him home. The love of God still yearns over the one who has chosen to separate from him, and he sets an operation, influences to bring him back to the father's house. We're going to see that's a completely different than the mindset of both sons that I'm going to earn his favor back. No, you are my son, you are my daughter, and that has not changed. And I'm going to continue to draw you with my Holy Spirit in hopes that you will come back. Not so you can prove anything, but I can wrap my loving arms around you and receive you as you are. Maybe it's our pride that doesn't want to be received as we are because we know how we are. So we want to get cleaned up first. What did Pastor Baute say? We go into the shower to get cleaned up. But so many of us want to take, what, a shower before we get in the shower? Jesus is the one that cleans us up. Now, I have four kids, and they know how to get really dirty. In my mind, I was thinking, Jesus isn't the shower. He's the waterfall. And there's so much water just pouring down. I don't care if you have clods of dirt this big and rocks that won't go down the drain. It's gone. But you don't get cleaned up first. He receives you as you are. Doesn't leave you that way, but he receives you. He sets an operation, influences to bring them back to the Father's house. And so he has this speech, these two parts. Let me earn your favor, my genuineness over time. Let me prove it to you. And the reality is the mentality of this younger son is not of a family relationship. He's not his son, but it's a servant-master relationship. But this is the best part of the story, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. How many thoughts did he have on his way there? How many times did the devil try and convince him this is a bad idea? How many times do you think he said, you know... But he went to his father. But he was still a great way off. And his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And this is the picture I like the most of all the ones I could find because the son has got his hand on the tree and he's trying to peek out from behind the tree. 
Who's going to see me first? Where's big brother? Where's all the other hired hands? Is there any of these guys that might still recognize me? Maybe he's having second thoughts, but it's too late now. Dad has spotted his boy. He knows that gate. He knows that walk. And so this old man, before anybody else can get to him, before anybody can, can heckle him and say, get out of here, you're not welcome here. No, no, no. He has to beat anyone else. And so he runs. Old men in Scripture don't run. But this old man is hiking up his robe, and he's hightailing it to his boy. And I imagine as they embrace and as he holds his son, he tries to, to get this speech out, if you will. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer be worthy to be called your son. Part one. But then what happens? Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. Not just any robe, the best robe. And guess which one is the best robe? It's Jesus' robe. It's the father's robe. Bring out my best robe. Put it on him. Where's the rest of it? And put on him and put a ring on his hand. This was that signet ring that gave him power and authority as a stun. He reinstates him. This is beyond imagination. I mean, who would do that in their business? They schnookered you out of half of the business. And then they come back and you say, all right, you're back in, free and clear. Who does this? The father does this. Bring out the best robe, give him the ring, put new sandals on those cut and torn up feet, and let's kill the fatted calf and eat and be merry, for this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The son was interrupted. He didn't get to finish. Amen. In fact, he never gets to finish. That's kind of the point. You don't earn your way back into God's favor. Amen. You're his son. You're his daughter. Amen. You're always welcome. Yeah, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. Folks, it doesn't matter what you've done. Not as it relates to how the Father will receive you. The arms are always open. And not just open standing there, but running to embrace you. And so all the servants that have gathered start fulfilling some of these orders and grabbing some of these things. And then there's this fatted calf, symbolic, I believe, of the Old Testament sacrifices that would symbolize the death of Jesus, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And so in this story, Jesus is willing to die so that the one joined to the harlot, to the joint, to gambling, to cheating, to stealing, can be justified. This is incredible. And this is the gospel. And so often I wish the story ended there. Don't you? 
This was my son who's dead and is alive again. He is lost, he's found, and they began to be married. And the older brother comes alongside, and they're celebrating, and everybody's excited, and it's happy ever after. And that curse of the end comes in like they used to do in the old days, and the choir sings, and you feel all warm inside, and it's done. But that's not what happens. says in verse 25. Oh, I, I missed a part here. We'll get back to that. I'm skipping all over the place. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit decides to do something, I guess. Amen. This idea that I'm not good enough. What does this verse tell us? 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... I have to be faithful and I have to be just. Is that what it says? God is faithful. And He is just to forgive me of my sins. We learned again or reminded again last weekend that a sin is a conscious choice to leave the Father, to put myself on the throne of my heart. But if I confess my sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The scripture reading that Phelan read to us, wonderful. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. That's a promise. Amen. We forsake that we're unrighteous and our thoughts are bad and, and all the rest and we return to the Lord. We set our path back home and he will have mercy on us and to our God for he will abundantly pardon, it says. I'm glad the words abundantly is there because I'm not needing just a little pardon. I'm needing an abundant pardon. Steps to Christ 54, even this parable, tender and touching as it is, comes short of expressing the infinite compassion of the Heavenly Father. Let that sink in. I love this story. This is a great story. And she just said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't transfer the infinite compassion of our Heavenly Father. is inadequate. Words can't describe it. Okay, so here's where I was, the happy ever after, the end. That's where I wish the story ended. But we still have verse 25. Now his older brother, or older son, I should say, was in the field. Where is he? In the field. He's a hard worker. He was out there at sunup. He is every day, except for Sabbath. He takes that off, according to the commandment. He pays his tithe. He's an elder in the church. He does everything by the book as he's supposed to. After all, he's the good son. He has from the time he was this high. He's been the yes man for his dad. Always aiming to please and to serve. And where do we find him? Not hard. We don't need to look very long. He's in the field. At this time, every day, he's in the field. And 
And it says, and he came and drew near to the house. Why? Because he heard music and dancing. Really, if we translate that better, music in Greek is symphonia. Sound familiar? Symphony? Dancing in Greek is koron. In Spanish, koro means choir. And so we have the symphony, we have the choir, there's a lot of to-do, and the older brother's out there in the field, and he thinks, this is not typical of an average Tuesday. What's going on? And so he inquires. And he called one of the servants and asked, verse 26, what these things meant. Verse 27, he said to him, your brother has come. And because he, what, and sorry, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. There it is again. But the brother doesn't rejoice, verse 28. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Again, here we have a brother who sadly does not have the relationship with his father as a son, but has the mentality of a slave. And too many in the church fit this same description. They're sons and they're daughters, but they have the mentality of a slave. They feel that they need to work to earn their father's favor, self-righteousness not only leads men to misrepresent God, but makes them cold-hearted and critical toward their brethren. Friends, if you haven't gotten it already, the reality is we don't earn God's favor. He loves us fully as a child. He receives us as we are. And it is the reality of that fact that I am viewed as a child, as an heir, as a recipient recipient of his grace. Friends, that's what changes me. There's nothing wrong with working in the field. There's nothing wrong with being on time or paying your tithe or worshiping, you know, keeping the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with those things. But why are you doing those things? To earn the favor? Or because you're a child of the king, an undeserving child of the king, that has so lavished his grace upon you, you can't do anything but help to respond by saying, what can I do to serve you the rest of my life? But if we're not careful, those two get inverted. And before I know it, I'm earning. And whenever I'm earning... I'm looking down at everyone else. I compare myself with you when truly the only person I should ever compare myself is with Jesus Christ. It keeps me humble and teachable and reliant upon Him. And so sometimes when people come home to the church, There's a party in heaven and someone to throw a party in church, but others of us want to just cross our arms and say, I wonder how long they'll stay this time. I mean, I still can't believe what they did. 
They don't deserve to be here. And while we cross our arms in content, heaven is rejoicing. What does that say about us? What does that say about me? And so here we have a gracious father again, not going to straighten out his son, but he goes out to meet his son, to receive him where he is in the end of verse 28. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have been working for you. I have been slaving for you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, he doesn't say my brother, this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You go and you kill the fatted calf. I imagine other worlds viewing salvation similarly. That planet down there, do you know what they're capable of? I don't even like to, to look at it, but I, I saw some little YouTube clips the other day of planet Earth, and I was so disturbed. And to think that even one of them was worthy of the fatted calf, of Jesus coming and dying in their place. They're not worthy. And they would be right. Which is the power of the gospel. And shows the love of the Father. And so he continues to labor with his son, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that I have, it's yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost and is found. Two brothers. Both had a backwards understanding of the father. One ended up in the pig pen, came to himself, and a clear representation, a realization of who the father was as he was received as he was. The other were left to wonder. We're not given any assurances, though. Last we hear of him, his arms are still crossed. And the question then falls to you and me. Who are we in this story? What are we to do with this story? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul reminds us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think very simply is to ask the very basic question, what is your relationship to your heavenly Father? Is it a master-slave, master-servant mentality? I have to earn his favor. I have to have enough good stuff to outweigh all the bad stuff. I mean, they call that karma. I haven't seen that in the 28 fundamentals. Have you? Yes, we want to serve God with all of our heart, our mind, our strength, everything that we have. But our love for the Father 
And our relationship to him as a son or as a daughter has to come first. Is this your picture of God? Or is this? Because the reality is it will impact your entire religious experience. One will transform your life and give you joy unspeakable. The other will leave you bitter, angry, judgmental, and unhappy. So again, what are you going to do with this story? I invite us all to take inventory of our relationship with the Father. The story makes plain because both brothers have that servant slave. Therefore, I believe it's our default to fall back into that. You've done really good. You're going to get a raise. Wonderful. You've studied really hard. You're going to get straight A's. That's great. But in the economy of heaven, the only reality that matters is that we are sons and daughters of God. John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the verse I had behind me on my homeroom class in Ponape. Short verse, but a pretty powerful one. Jesus doesn't cast us off, but he receives us. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Do you believe that? So wait, I don't need to do good works? I can do whatever I want? I can go back? Well, if we go back to this story, do you think the prodigal son ever returned to the far country? I don't think so. Why not? Because I believe the father's love impacted him in such a profound way that he never left his father again. Amen. And that's the key. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Quit running away to a far country. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do how much? Nothing. And Pastor Balte reminded us last week, these are the fruits of the Spirit. They're not the fruits of David Wright. They're not the fruits of you. They're the fruits of the Spirit. You don't generate them. You don't bring them about. But you surrender yourself to God. You abide in Him. You ask for the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And look at the fruits of the Spirit. It's love. It's joy. Amen. It's peace. It's Long-suffering, we could say it's, it's patient. It takes a deep breath. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To finish the verse, it says, of these there's no law against these things. Amen. Friends, that's what God longs to do. If we'll simply abide in Him. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, he's doing everything in his power to restore lost humanity. Whether it's the sheep that are lost and they don't know their way home, whether it's the coin lost in the home or the church and is unaware like the older brother, 
or whether you pushed God away and dishonored Him in every way imaginable. Heaven is waiting to rejoice over every lost sinner that repents. And with tender sympathy, love, and compassion, He longs to restore our relationship to Him. We're all here in church this morning, but again, what's your relationship to the Father? Is Jesus coming as an exacting judge or a loving Father? Are we slaves or are we sons and daughters of the King? Will we be fearful or will we rejoice? It's my prayer that we'll embrace the latter. And that it will transform us through and through. That we may not be able to hold it back any longer, but proclaim from the mountains and the hilltops, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, forever I am. Dear Heavenly Father, in this story, we can relate to both brothers. We have been the prodigal. We have engaged in wasteful living of not just resources, but time and energy, efforts. We have brought disdain upon your name. We can also relate to the older brother with arms crossed, critical of everyone else, wondering why they can't get their act together. How is this justice? How is this fair? We've ourselves had times of bitterness and legalism. The one we can't seem to relate to is this love of the Father. That in spite of wherever we are in the spectrum, comes out and finds us in the field, runs to receive us with open arms and draw us back home. That part is perhaps the hardest part to understand. But Lord, if this parable is true, and we should think that it is because you told it, what do we have to be afraid of? What would ever keep us from returning to you and asking and repenting of our sins and abiding in your presence, not just today, but forever and always, and allow you to change us into the man, woman, or child that you long for us to be. Lord, help us to that end. May we receive you, not as our master, but as our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.